Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Remember that scene in Jerry Maguire where Cuba Gooding Jr. screams into his phone, show me the money. My guest today is not a sports agent, but he does help his clients become more profitable. Join us for a discussion of RVUs, new payment models, and trends in physician compensation, next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Jeff Gorky. He is a national figure in healthcare consulting. He has spent part of his career working for large medical practices and the other part of his career consulting for them. He's a national speaker and is a contributor to Forbes.com. Jeff, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Well, you, sir, have a national profile and work with health systems all over the, the country. Uh, tell, tell me what issues are hot uh, with uh, folks that you're helping uh, today. Yeah. So, and I think this is sort of an industry agnostic or business vertical agnostic problem, and that's staffing. Um, it, it just the the recruitment retention. You know, people will uh, will leave a position for an extra dollar an hour or two dollars an hour, and um, it, it's really negatively impacting a, a lot of uh, the clients we deal with. And and again, it's irrespective of where the folks are, whether it's a rural setting or uh, a large academic medical center, um, effectively just a problem throughout, generally speaking. And that also uh, applies in some instances towards um, clinicians, uh, physicians. You get the nursing staff issue. And um, I do know a handful of traveling nurses um, and the money on the traveling side is so good uh, it's hard for a lot of them to kind of settle back down into just just uh, the nine to five or the 12 to 12 shift of working for one health system. Absolutely. Let's let's take a step. Let's take a step back. I was my first question. I was a little excited to, to, to talk with you. Maybe you could give us uh, a sense of your history and in background and what got you interested in healthcare. Yeah, that's a, it's interesting or not. It was interesting to me because I kind of fell into healthcare, but. I've been in um, healthcare management for roughly 33 years, not a clinician, but it's one of these things where, um, you know, by kind of dint of osmosis, if you don't pick up a little bit about the clinical piece, then you uh, are maybe a little too daft to be in the space. But in any event, um, yeah, my undergrad was uh, finance international business. And I thought certainly that I was going to end up banking um, in New York or working at the Philly Stock Exchange. But anyway, I, I fell into um, working with the Travelers Insurance Company, which is the, I don't know, even know if they advertise anymore, the big red umbrella. And at the time, they had the administration of, I think, I want to say it was like six uh, Part B contracts for Medicare. So what that meant is basically they managed Medicare administration in six states. Um, and so I landed there. And after uh, about five years there, right out of undergrad, I went to run um, some private practices and just kind of grew from there. So it was private practices. And then um, as 
is often the case with people in that role. In the administrative role, it's, you know, you go maybe from two docs to six to eight to 10, you know, to 100, whatever the case may be. Um, so I did that for really about half my career. And then I got into what I call advisory versus consulting. Consulting kind of makes me feel dirty, <laughs> but advisory, because I look at this as a partnership. So when I work with, um, with health systems or clients or private practices, I, I'm there to help them get better. Um, I'm not there to churn awake and scare people and scare staff. A lot of times when people like me come in the door, um, it makes team members a little unnerved. And, and the approach I take and what I do is, how do I make you look like a rock star? How do I improve the profit margin in wherever I am? Um, how do I help facilitate care delivery for the clinicians to hopefully make their lives easier and better? So, uh, so that's, that's essentially me. I'm specialty agnostic. I've been doing this a long time. So it doesn't matter if you're cardiology or internal med or family practice. Um, the care delivery platforms I deal with, uh, academic medical centers, private practices, FQ, federally qualified uh, health clinics, rural clinics, critical access hospitals. I've done tribal work. I've done de novo surgery center startups. Uh, well, I guess that's kind of redundant. Um, I've done a lot of cleanup work on surgery centers. So uh, sort of a wide array of work throughout the country. So I'm based in Atlanta, but just given the nature of what I do, it's really, you know, do I have access to a computer and to the airport? Uh, and that facilitates everything else that I need to get accomplished. Let's talk a little bit about private practice versus hospital employee for, mm -hmm. for physicians, because I know that you have some some thoughts on that and assist uh, people with it. Maybe you could kind of give me your analytical uh, framework for how those how those deals are are best done from the eyes of a of a physician. Yeah. So. Um... Golly, the genesis of the employment model, I'll go back to the kind of 90s when managed care was a thing in its purest form or what folks kind of contemplated managed care to be. And so the health systems at the time saw managed care as, or, or put this way, to, to go on the offense, a lot of health systems started to acquire primary care docs, uh, family practice internal medicine because they thought that was a way to be the gatekeeper to um, to other services down the line um, downstream you know whether it's you you know you turf something out to cardiology or whatever but that's the way they could control the flow of referrals etc um, what happened then is some of the contracts for the providers got a little too lucrative uh, hospitals bled red ink on many of those deals and then when managed care really didn't take hold as the next biggest thing in healthcare, a lot of systems divested. And so as you move forward, there, there was this, this movement in the 2000s of reacquisition, but with a different model in mind. And some of the private practice physicians approach that from a point of, you know, really the downward pressure of revenue from Medicare cutting or Medicaid um, or your contracts weren't great with your commercial insurers. And then they had the upward pressure of the expenses where, you know, now we needed to have an EMR that required, you know, back then there wasn't the cloud support. There wasn't, you know, um, software as a service. It was, I got to get hardware. I got to get hard terminals. I got to hardwire everything. I need to vent the place out. So it doesn't know all this stuff. And just all of those factors coming together and a lot of 
physicians just decided, you know, enough's enough. I can go and work in a health system, get a decent paycheck and not need to worry as much about overhead, um, about if Susie stubs her toe or she's got a childcare issue, I've got to figure out how my team covered, you know, those day-to-day things um, got removed from the clinician's hands. So um, it, there was some of that transition in the 2000s where people just were like, I'm done. Now I have seen some groups starting to peel away um, and form some different models to enjoy the benefits of private practice without the pain of private practice, if you will. Do you see the uh, relative priorities of, of physicians? I mean, you're speaking about people that um, and we can hear them say this, right? I just want to treat patients. I right. just want to be in the exam room. I don't want to deal with um, a lot of the administrative or mm-hmm. compliance things. Um, do you see that that changes by the age of the practitioner? I mean, are there there are certain priorities or goals that you would see in a 30-year-old physician that you might not see or that they might be different in a 65-year-old physician? Yeah, you know, I'm going to tell you this anecdotally, that my sense, and I don't have the numbers to substantiate this, I'm a data guy, but but my sense is the folks coming out of training right now just don't want to trifle with running a business, right? And all that goes into that you see some that are coming out that are willing to do that. Um, but the thing that I, whenever I speak about healthcare management and, and um, practice administration, running a private practice or being a party to that, whether you're a shareholder or, you know, minority, whatever that looks like, minority shareholder or full, um, it, it's a business and it's also a healthcare business. So in other words, you have all of the things that go into running a widget factory or a Ford, you know, assembly line, you've got to pay attention to how the revenue is generated, how the bills are paid, you know, what the staffing, all of those components. And then you have the medical legal aspects that are thrown in just for excitement, which are, you know, you've got your med mal exposure, you've got HIPAA. um, You also have the HR pieces because you are a business. So you've got, you know, anti-discrimination things, Sure. Um, just all of those, those moving parts, um, stark fair market value, things of that nature. So I think a fair number, and again, anecdotal, but I think a fair number of folks coming out of training, um, are just throwing their hands up there. Like, you know what, I'm going to go to a health system. I'm going to have call one every sixth or something and boom, that's it. So the give get there too, I would tell you my sense of it is, you know, you go into a health system, and then the question is, what kind of say do you have? Are you are do you have a seat at the table, or are you just a widget maker? And and that's where there is a little bit of a rub with clinicians, especially those who are in practice. Have their practice get bought out, and they're used to being entrepreneurs, used to having a say. Um, but that's a, a different rabbit hole we can or can't go down. It's entirely up to you. Sure. Let's let's talk about some new compensation models. What are you uh, seeing out there as far as new compensation models, Jeff? Yeah, um, so hearkening back to what I had said earlier about the um, the acquisition of the primary care groups back in the 90s, what happened 
generally speaking, what happened then was the health systems acquired the group's practices, and then they paid, in many instances, fixed compensation. And the physicians then had uh, contractually, they were going to get paid regardless of how many patients they saw, right? So um, the incentive or the drivers to manage your cost, manage your overhead, all of those pieces, eh, you kind of sort of didn't have to pay as careful attention to that. You were going to get paid anyway. And so what ended up happening in many instances, and again, this is general, um, so I'm, I'm, it's time frame general, and it's across the country general, certainly. But um, what ended up happening is the health systems, let's say I'm paying Dr. X $250,000 a year, he generates now $175,000, and I have no recourse because I have to pay him you know, two fifty every year. So I'm upside down, or as they say in, in the administrative side of things, I'm subsidizing um, that physician. So um, as the 2000s came around and you had that, that mid to late 90s divestiture and the 2000s rolled around and the, the hospitals decided that once again, they wanted to acquire groups and keep and drive um, referrals within their um, systems, they started using work relative value units as drivers in the in the compensation modeling. So that's in the 2000s. And, and for those folks listening, I don't know if everyone has been exposed to what a work relative value unit is, but I won't get into the weeds of that there. You can um, do a little legwork on that. The bottom line to that is CPT codes, which uh, MA created the um, current procedural terminology codes. Those are built they have a bunch of moving parts in them, but in each one of those CPT codes has a quote unquote work value. And those vary depending on the complexity of the work. So if you did just a 99211, which is an established patient office visit, that is quote unquote, very little work in it. If you're doing a complex surgery, lots of work in it. So what the health systems did in the 2000s is they built some of these comp models off work relative value units where physicians would be paid based on the amount of work they did. And then there's some hybridization to those where you might get a little bit of a fixed base and then you're incented and, and you know, those could be all over the place relative to the construct. But the, the broad kind of theme in the 2000, early 2000s was um, that we're going to incent you to um, see patients, you'll be rewarded for work, et cetera. What has happened in the last seven, seven, eight, nine years has been kind of a this I hate to say reimagining sounds kind of trite, but it has been a reimagining of um, the comp plans where now this idea of value-based care is starting to um, work its way into, um, into health systems and reimbursement and things of that nature. And so I've seen modeling and I've worked on some modeling where there's a work RVU component. There could be an operational efficiency component. Um, and there can also be a service line component, and you you put values to each one of those and mash them together to get the overall reimbursement rate. So it would be easier for me to show you on a graphic. But let's say you have if if you're if you're envisioning this on a spreadsheet, you've got let's say a hundred thousand dollars of fixed comp, and then you've got maybe twenty five dollars per work RVU, uh, and then you've got maybe. 5%, maybe there's a pool for you or for your service line, if you're a cardiologist, where if, if you help reduce cost or manage cost within your service line or for the health system, however that's defined, maybe there's another 10, 15, 20,000 that 
um, accrues to you. Then let's say it's cardiology and you have um, two measures, we'll say management of congestive heart failure. Okay. And then the other one might be use of beta blockers, post MI, something like that. And each one of those is worth $10,000. So I hit whatever those criteria are. It's documented because it has to be documented. And that rolls in another 20,000. So, so you see these, these models that aren't just incentivizing work RVUs, but they're also incentivizing, we want to manage our costs better, right? So you're, you're kind of transferring or nudging a little of those other components that the 90s, no one really cared about from the health. No one incented or disincentivized the behavior. And so now you're incentivizing, you know, the behavior, the outcomes and things of that nature. So it's, it's been this mixed bag. And one of the things when I talk about this is one size never fits all. Um, uh, it's trite, but it's factually true that healthcare is local. Um, and it's local to, let's boil it down this way. Um, I'm in Atlanta, uh, but if I go an hour and a half south of Atlanta, I could be in rural hospital X and it's totally different down there, right? So the demographics matter, um, whether it's your demographics in your specialty or just your patient demographics in the community, uh, they make a difference. And so that comes into play relative to health system hospital reimbursement, but also in comp plans. Um, I have a few rural clients that are struggling to, uh, to land clinicians and keep them. And in some of those instances, they're paying um, what I'd say kind of out of market to get those physicians on board. And they can make a legitimate argument they need to pay more because no one is going to wherever they are you know, nowhere Iowa or nowhere Nevada um, to see patients. And so I would make an argument actually that some of the compensation, some of the dr drivers really are supply and demand related. If you looked at a supply and demand curve, um, you know, where there is high demand and no supply, that's going to drive up the, uh, the value of the position. So. So it strikes me as you describe the, the formula that it is difficult from a provider's point of view to know if he or she is being paid appropriately. The complexity of the formula creates difficulty in um, verifying the compensation. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair criticism? Um, I think it is. And I, and I would say that the, the retort to that relative to um, the clinicians is, so when I look at contracts, I'm a visual guy. So if I look at a contract and it's a, um, let's say it's a payer contract, Blue Cross Blue Shield or United or somebody, and they say, oh, we're going to pay this and that. You know, I need to understand what that means, even in facile terms as what does that boil down into dollars and cents? Likewise, I would say in, in, the, in the narrative piece of an employment contract, it's this, that, and the other thing. Okay, show me how that looks numerically. So I get a sense of, of what that's going to look like. And so there's that. So you boil that down and say, okay, I can see if I see this many patients or this happens, I can make this much, you know, you at least understand some of the parameters um, of, of the comp plan. So for me, the visual piece and the mathematics help to kind of paint that picture. And then the other piece is um, how transparent is the organization? It should be very readily, the, the data should be readily available to the clinician at any time to just you know, vet, verify, validate without getting into anyone else's, you know, you're just going down your own lane. I want to see what that looks like. We have, it's interesting, we had a client um, out West 
they have a thousand between their employed and their affiliated clinicians. Um, they have about a network of a thousand um, clinicians, and they wanted our assistance in in attribution of certain elements. So it's work, it's their piece of whatever the value based the quality indicators are and things of that nature. Um, and I and I think clinicians, if you're in a big system. So again, this does matter, big system versus small or private practice versus not. But if you're in a um, system, it should be you having a discussion with the leadership um, to level set those things and to ask about you know, the spreadsheet and transparency and verifying, validating. Or if you're in a large system and you've got, you have to have some sort of physician liaison to, to um, really carry the mantle for you when you're dealing with healthcare, um, with leadership. In the, on the hospital side. Make sense? It, it does. Thank okay. you. Mm-hmm. Have you, Jeff, have you been involved with any practice that is um, interested in uh, going the private equity route? So yeah. Like private equity. Yes. And if so, can you give us some ideas on what practices should be doing to prepare themselves yeah. for private equity deals? Yeah. Great question. So, um, have seen a lot of that of late. Um, I am not an accountant. So as I am not a clinician, I'm not an accountant, but I do understand some of the dynamic of the transaction. There is some money paid out on the front end to the owners of the practice that my understanding is there's generally a reduction in compensation um, to kind of as sort of a payback of that front end um, comp. Uh, the value of private equity deals for me, um, I have not seen, and they may be out there, I just haven't been privy to it, but I have not seen a private equity deal flip um, of late. So so the goal generally is they aggregate, they build these things out, and then you want to flip them to some other PE firm or something like that. Um, uh, the question vis-a-vis prep work for this is, how do you tighten up the ship so that you improve the profitability, um, which translates to improved what they call multiples for the physicians, the owners. Um, so for instance, if I, um, let's say I've got $100 in revenue, $50 in expenses. So my, my EBITDA or my profitability is $50. In a private practice, that spreads out to all the shareholders. So though, how can I increase the revenue to 110 which is going to give me $60 in profitability. And maybe I can reduce the, the operating expenses to 40. So that's going to get me up to $70 profitability. Then when I talk to the PE firms, they're going to give me 10 times multiple on that $70, right? Um, and so it's, it's really, how do we tighten the ship? But, but how do we do it in a thoughtful manner, right? You can't, I've always said this, and this is trite, you can't cut your, cut your way to profitability. So if you've got five nurses making $90,000 a year, you can't get rid of your five nurses and go, hey, look at the improvement profitability, because somewhere that's going to that's gonna negatively impact care, right? It's, you, you can't cut to the point where you just can't see patients effectively, efficiently, or whatever. So, so when you're in discussions with the PE firms, or if you think you're going to be, is how do we leverage ourselves to make the best presentation possible? To, because that impacts the dollar value of the deal for the shareholders. So, and I will tell you this, I um, am working with a group of 
It's a private practice, orthopedic group. They had a large investment bank that was interested in, in working with them on a private equity deal. And so you're talking about, I'll just say between 100 and 300 um, orthopedic surgeons. So really big group, huge market presence. And that kind of sat on the back burner for about three, four months. And then they reached out to me and said, Jeff, we're not going the PE route. We're going to create a management services organization and we're going to work with other orthopedic groups. So they're going to get ahead of steam. They're going to get economies of scale, they hope, and those types of things. So that's another avenue people are considering in lieu of going the PE route. And, and you would assist people with that analysis. Is that correct? Is that correct? Yeah. Come in. Mm -hmm. uh, find the priorities of the organization and what's right. the best fit for, for right. that organization. Yeah, with the approach being, again, we're not going to cut 90% of our staff because you're going to get upside down. I mean, you won't see the patients. You're, so how do we address optimization, right? It's, it's really the profitability, um, that delta between expense and revenue. So how do we improve the revenue side without doctors, you know, clinicians staying there till midnight every night? How do we, under your current parameters, whatever those are in your care delivery model, whatever you're comfortable with, how do we improve the throughput? Is it a contract thing with the payers? Is it more patients? Um, are we capturing all the ancillary revenues we need to do? What does that look like? And then on, on the, the back end is, what are we paying for our med mal? Is this the right malpractice? What is our lease rate? You know, all of those things that are fixed, you know, when do those come up? Can we renegotiate those? Um, can we renegotiate our... IT contracts. Um, what what do our internal comp plans look like? Are we are we paying staff the right way? Are we using staff the right way? Right. I've had clinicians who, um, like an internal medicine practice, this doctor Doctor X loves his nurse, so is an eighty five thousand dollar a year nurse who works out patients. That makes no sense at all in the clinical flow of things. She should be doing some sort of um, some sort of specialty clinic within her scope of care and you do an MA or whatever that looks like to them. I don't, again, don't want to get in the way of that relationship, but certainly an argument can be made. You don't need an $85,000 a year RN to take blood pressures, histories, weights, et cetera. So it's looking at all of those component pieces to leverage those and, and create that bigger Delta if the clinicians wanted to sell the practice. Our time's almost up, but You've offered some really great, helpful information, and you certainly have a tremendous amount of experience on the national stage. So I don't want to let you go, Jeff, without uh, getting some some practical tips from you from or, from the point of view of the organization that would be hiring you. How far in advance, if they're thinking about going the private equity route or doing something else, when's it appropriate to bring someone like you in? How should they do that? What does it look like? What are some mm. pro tips on that? So um, kind of a loaded question because it depends. And here's why. Um, some Only like, lawyers can use the <laughs> depends answer. Go okay. ahead. I'm sorry. So, so the, the predicate really is, it, it, part of it is, how, how well do you think you are doing right now? One of the things I say to folks, and again, this is, is, is not being overly hubristic, I don't think, that having been in this position and seen a myriad different approaches to healthcare delivery and operations for the last 33 years, I, I kind of feel like I can guarantee an ROI on what I bring to the table. Now, is that a two to one or a 10 to one? It depends 
on where the clinic is, right? What's going on? But there's an investment on the front end and, and, it, and it, the, the predicate to, to um, answer the question is how big is the place? How well is it run right now? How efficient are they? When do they want to have an event? Um, and what does that look like? What's going on in their market, right? Because what they do in, in PE is they'll have what they call like a platform practice. So let's, let's say dermatology has been a big play um, of late or in the recent past. You get a big derm practice and then you start bolting on little ones within the vicinity, right? So you start to build out this sort of regional presence and then maybe a national presence or what have you. So it depends on where you are. If you're a two-doc practice, your leverage is less. Depends on if they need you to fill out maybe a subspecialty portfolio or just to build out a whole just big internal medicine group, whatever. Um, it depends on how broken you are or what kind of help you may need. Um, getting in there quickly is not the issue. It's what do you see? If you see a lot of low-hanging fruit, you address that, you improve profitability within a couple months. If you see a lot of things that are a little wonky, that may take six months to remedy. And so I think clinicians or shareholders who want to at least dabble need to understand and be introspective and honest about where they stand and what's going on um, within their four walls so that they can really, really analyze, could we go to a PE firm tomorrow or can we go within six months? So um, it really is predicated on size, scope, um, how well the clinic is run, how profitable they are, the need in their community. Um, if a PE firm has already blown through and, and gobbled up what they think they need, it may be too little too late. So it's really driven on, on the mar again, market dynamic, what's going on in your backyard. My guest has been Jeff Gorky, national healthcare consultant. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Mike, appreciate your time. Thank you. My thanks to Jeff Gorky for his time and insights. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Robin, Red Book of Power.